From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. This week, the federal government has announced long-awaited fuel efficiency standards. These would place a yearly cap on the total emissions output for new cars sold in Australia. Standards are widespread in comparable countries, but the government's move has nevertheless triggered some controversy here. Today, we're joined by the Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Chris Bowen, to talk about these standards and also about the challenges being faced in Australia's transition to a clean energy economy. Chris Bowen, you and Transport Minister Catherine King have insisted that the fuel standards won't affect the choice of cars for sale or their price. But how can this be possible with a system that imposes fines on car makers whose average emissions exceed a certain level? Thanks, Michelle. Well, because what we're doing is not requiring car companies to send us any particular model or to stop sending us any particular model. Uh, And 85% of cars around the world are sold under a regime such as this. And so this is quite standard around the world. In fact, it's been in the case in the United States since the 1970s and in no country where efficiency standards have been introduced have we seen the price of models go up as a result of that policy and indeed in the United States for example they've been tightening their efficiency standards by about 30 percent and the price of no model has gone up but this is really about choice you asked about you know choice it's really about more choices yes we are going to require as a matter of law car companies to send us better fleets Um, But better fleets will mean more choices for Australians, particularly more choices of cars that are more efficient and uh, cheaper to run and lower emission. So who will be the winners and the losers in this scheme? And you have figuring on what people will save or some people will save, but those are well into the future. And we have seen what's happened to some pre-election energy estimates on savings, the 275 number, and it's hard, surely, to say anything sensible years out. Well, of course, it takes time to have an impact because this policy would start in 2025 and then, you know, gradually um, come into force uh, each year. Uh, And so what we're saying is by 2028, um, if somebody buys a new car at that time, uh, then their saving is likely to be around $1,000 a year. and that's, that's simply because when you look at Australia's cars, we have very inefficient cars compared even to the United States. I think most listeners, Michelle, would understand and accept that European cars are probably going to be more efficient than Australian cars, and they are by 40%. But US cars are more efficient by 20% than Australian cars. Now, the US has a very big fleet of pickup trucks and SUVs and what have you. I mean, it's a big country like Australia, and you know a lot of people like big cars like they do in Australia, but even their cars are 20% more efficient. So... Getting a 20% saving of fuel by moving to a regime similar to the United States just makes perfect sense. And so I don't see, to your question, I don't see any losers. I don't see any losers out of this policy because you could still get full range of choice. But those who have been looking for more a more efficient car, whether it be an EV, and yes, choice of EVs is an important issue. We have um, fewer than 100 models available in Australia. In the United States and even New Zealand, they have more than 150 models available. But also, there's a big range of fuel efficiency in existing models, and we have less efficient models <coughs> excuse me, available in Australia. Do you admit, though, that that $1,000 figure uh, could be a bit flaky? No, no, it's modelling. And, of course, uh, it's an average. Um, but 
Uh, as I said, it's pretty simple, Michelle. If you improve fuel efficiency by around 20% on average, um, then you're going to have 20% savings on fuel. Now, you've made the point about uh, different countries, different circumstances. Some critics say that Australia differs in the type of mix of vehicles that are driven and that you're not taking sufficient account of that difference. What's your reply to this? Well, that's not right in terms of us not taking into account. Yes, of course, Australian circumstances are different. Every country is different. That's why you know, some people criticise us for taking a year to work this through. Um, but I don't apologise for that because it took a year to work it through and make sure we were taking into account those circumstances. We've decided to match the United States, as I said, you know, similar to Australia in many ways. Um, we haven't decided to match New Zealand or Europe with stricter standards, partly for that reason. I mean, we could have gone down that road. Uh, our preferred model matches the United States, which I think is a good model and a good balance. Uh, and as I said, 85% of cars sold around the world have to comply with these standards. Why shouldn't Australians have access to the same standards and the same choice that 85% of other motorists have around the world? Now, people are obviously moving to uh, EVs, but I think not fast. How many do you expect to switch to EVs in the coming years as a result of this policy? We haven't set a target. You know, that has not been our approach. We are giving Australians more choice. So we aren't saying, you know, we must get to this percentage by this date. Obviously, we, we, we like people having the, the, the choice of EVs and like people taking up EVs because they're um, good for emissions and good for cost of living. But um, it's, an, it's a choice for Australians. And I recognise everyone's in a, on a journey. You know, some people are looking at plug-in hybrids. Some people are just not ready yet. That is perfectly understandable. And it varies from where you live in Australia to your circumstances, how far and how often you drive. Um, but I don't think it's a bad thing that every single Australian, regardless of where they live and regardless of their circumstances, gets more opportunities to buy more efficient vehicles, including EVs, into the future. Have you spoken to car manufacturers since making the announcement? And if so, what's in general been their response and reaction? Well, I think every industry would prefer, you know, no regulation of themselves. <laughs> you, you would understand that, Michelle, over the many debates that you've seen waged in this building over the years. So they've been a bit cool? Well, look, the FCAI actually supports a fuel efficiency standard uh, and have been lobbying for one for a long time. Um, you'll get people saying, oh, we support fuel efficiency standards, but, you know, this is too fast or it's too late or it's too quick or whatever. But frankly, Michelle, the time for that debate is over. You know, this was tried by the previous government in 2015, 16. Josh Frydenberg tried it. It failed. Um, if you'd started a lot earlier, you might be able to have a much slower ramp up. But because, for whatever reason, people who didn't want this policy stopped it for so long, it's appropriate now that we move prudently but expeditiously uh, to meet the United States. Well, let's now turn to the energy transition where the ramp-up issue is also much to the fore. Energy prices have been at the top of Australians' minds, of course, over the, uh, the recent past. And while energy wholesale prices have dropped recently, do you think Australians can expect their prices to uh, continue to drop further, their energy household bills? Well, I think, um, Michelle, it's very encouraging that wholesale prices are down so much, down 60% compared to when the coalition was office, in office, down very substantially on the same time last year. So that shows the plan is working. Uh, you know, more renewables and the coal and gas caps have worked. I know that Australians don't pay wholesale prices, they pay retail prices. 
wholesale prices are one of the inputs into real retail prices, um, roughly about a third. Um, there are other factors that go in as well. We're going to see in the next few weeks the draft decision by the Australian Energy Regulator. Um, obviously, that big reduction in wholesale prices will factor in that, but it will only be one factor. And uh, I don't want to preempt what the regulator says, but obviously I'm encouraged uh, very strongly by the fact that the measures we've been putting in place have been having, having such a big effect on wholesale prices. Now, obviously, your colleague Jim Chalmers is uh, working on the budget and he's flagged there'll be more cost of living measures there. Do you think there's any more scope for uh, more help with energy bills or have we come to the end of what can be done there? I'm not in the business, Michelle, as you'd understand, of preempting uh, budget announcements by the Treasurer. But, you know, uh, we had very substantial uh, energy relief uh, over the last year. We're always looking at what more we can and should do. The Treasurer, the Prime Minister and I are always looking at those sorts of things and, you know, uh, we'll take an appropriately prudent, responsible approach to help Australians with cost of living pressures, as we have done. Um, but I'm not preempting decisions. But at least it's on the table. Oh, I'm not preempting decisions one way or another. This week, outside Parliament House, we saw what was called the Rally Against Reckless Renewables, which called for a moratorium on renewables. We're hearing a, a lot about local concerns, about wind farms, transmission lines. How widespread do you think these concerns are or do you think they're overblown? And are you uh, confident that the consultative process is adequate? So, Michelle, I think I think a couple of things need to be said here. Yes, there was a protest, which is you know quite common at Parliament House to have a protest out the front, and there are a couple of hundred people out there. Um, I think in relation to renewable energy in the regions, there are two things going on. Firstly, there are genuine, real, uh, properly held concerns amongst communities and landholders about making sure that the community gets benefit, making sure that the projects are properly planned, making sure uh, that local views are taken into account. And I think that's very legitimate. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time looking at that and thinking about it, and I commissioned the Andrew Dyer Review, which I'll come back to in a moment. Um, so I, there, there's that going on. And, you know, these are big changes. And many people in communities, and I do spend a lot of time in these communities talking to people, they say, look, we, we support renewable energy. Not just we're not against it, we support it, but we want to make sure it's done properly and we want to make sure that the region benefits as well as the country. That's very legitimate. As well as that, you've got bad faith actors playing politics, whipping up scare campaigns. I mean, if you, would go, if you went down to that rally, I didn't go, but I've seen the reportage. Um, a lot of the, spe the speeches weren't about better community consultation. They weren't about, you know, better, more community benefit. There was climate science denial. There was um, fear-mongering. There was identity politics. There, were, there was just conspiracy theories being spouted by the speakers. And this is National Party, you know, Palmer Party, Liberal Party, uh, One Nation. And what's happening here is they are trying to whip this up for their agenda. You know, they, they don't support renewable energy. The National Party does not support renewable energy. They don't. And they will be very, very big figures if the Liberal National Party returns to government. Um, so hence my argument that Peter Dutton would be a worse Prime Minister for climate policy than Scott Morrison or Tony Abbott were. Um, he will just allow Barnaby Joyce to call the shots, and so will David Littleproud. Now, what they are doing is competing 
with One Nation and Palmer on who can be more anti-renewables for that segment of the vote. I think, Michelle, it's a betrayal of regional Australia because regional Australia has a huge amount to benefit from renewable energy. There's a report out today about the jobs that will be created from renewable energy in the regions. I'm very committed to improving community consultation. It should have happened many years ago. And we've been doing that and we'll continue to do that and ensuring real regional benefit from these projects. But what we won't be doing is pausing or having a moratorium because the last 10 years were pause enough. We need, in the best interest of the country and the regions, to get it right, but we need to get to more renewable energy. It's in everyone's best interest. But leaving aside the nationals' political interests, what do you say to the farmers who say, well, we in the regions are bearing the the costs of these projects, the disruption, okay, they're getting compensation, but nevertheless That's they not, yes. bring difficulties. They are Your electorate in suburban Sydney is not affected. What do you well, say to those people? No, but my, obviously, I mean, I, I live alongside transmission lines. You know, they've been there for 50 years, you know, so my, I, I represent the biggest industrial state in the Southern Hemisphere. There's lots of energy coming in and out of it and it runs past my house. So, you know, um, that's really, with respect, not a valid argument. Um, but but that's what the farmers say. Well, that's what Barnaby Joyce says. But look, there are some farmers who say that. There are other farmers who say this is great. You know, I was in Grab and Gullen last week. Um, farmer Ken said to me, and he owns land surrounding a wind farm. He doesn't own the land there. The wind farm's actually on, but he owns, owns land on, you know, surrounding it, circling it. He said, I was dead against it. I hated it. I fought it. I, I believed all the lies. I believed the misinformation. I was stressing. I was impacting on my life. And then it got built regardless of my objections. And he said, it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. You know, they let me adjust my cattle on um, amongst their wind turbines free of charge, they pay me compensation, it's made my farm much more viable, it's bigger, um, it's secured the future of my farm. Um, I've had many farmers tell me similar stories. I'm not, I'm not saying it's every farmer, uh, but it's many, and they say, look, you know, I used to be completely drought dependent for my income, now I've got a drought-proof source of income from the rent, um, from the wind turbines or the solar panels or the payments of being a neighbour to them. So there are there's there's much good story to tell as well as the challenges and the difficulties. A bit like the telephone towers. Well, sure. I mean, change is hard, Michelle. You know, change is controversial, and you're never going to get everybody saying, "Oh, we love this change." You know, but when you have a proper conversation with people, yes, there's some people who say we don't want it. You know, I met with some of those this week. We don't want it. We think the policy's bad. We don't want any of this. But you get, in my experience, more people saying we want it done properly, but we understand it's going to happen. And we supported. Now, you mentioned before the uh, report recently released on the social license on consultation and so on. Just tell us a bit about that report, what it found, and what you're doing. So, I commend it to people who are interested to have a read of it. It found a problem. It found that um, community engagement hasn't been good enough in the past. It found that um, there's a variance of quality of proponents. You know, my language, not. Andrew Dyers, but you know, there's good developers and there's cowboys. Um, so it recommended a few things, and it recommend and it found that there were some projects were being developed or proposed that will never be approved. You know, anybody sensible looking at them will say, "Well, that's not going to work. That's not going to get through." But yet, the farmers are having their doors knocked on, and communities are being stressed. So it recommended a, a star rating system for developers, so people can see whether they're a good developer or a cowboy. It recommended better complaints handling processes. It recommended more transparent, sort of upfront planning to say, you know. Some of these, some of these areas are just not suitable. Don't bother looking at them. 
I've accepted all recommendations in principle. There's nine. There's a lot of detail to be worked through, as you'd understand. A lot of it is sort of state, territory, local government cooperation with us. So, um, you know, the state saw the report before I released it and are happy to work with us on it, but there's a lot of detail to work through there. Um, but in principle, the direction of travel is very clear. And what, as I said, is I see the report as a start. You know, I want to build on it. I want to see better community engagement and better community benefit. Just on the star rating system, it, that would be difficult, surely, because if you label, or whoever, labels someone a cowboy... Mm. Well, it's going to be a voluntary system. I, you don't have to apply. But if you don't have a star rating system, then that's going to perhaps, you know, be to the disadvantage of the developer in and of itself. And uh, is there going to be any um, uh, control on cowboy behaviour? Well, I mean, I think the star rating system will be a big factor there because, you know, if you go through the process and you get one star, then you're going to want to lift your game pretty quickly. Um, Now, again, we've got a lot of work to do. We'll work with the industry. uh, We'll work with states and territories. Um, You're right. It will be a challenge to implement, but we have to do something in this space. Now, late last year, the government, and notably the Treasurer, admitted that the energy transition was not on track for the 2030 target. Given some of these local problems and other issues, are you confident that things are now getting back on track? Yes, I am. And, you know, the Treasurer and I, um, you know, uh, work very, very, very closely together and um, collaborate on many different policies and speeches, etc. Um, that The Treasurer made that speech um, uh, before the government had announced uh, the Capacity Investment Scheme expansion, which I announced in the uh, first part of December last year. Very just, significant. just remind us of that. So that is basically, it's a very big scheme to for the government to underwrite um, renewable energy uh, investments through an auction system um, where proponents will come in with a minimum re- required profit and a maximum required profit and will run an auction to determine the best value for the taxpayer. Um, 32 gigawatts. So that is basically designed to get us on track to 82, and we will. We are on track uh, for 82, given that intervention. We have work to do on planning, on on community support, on supply chain issues. But that work is happening. You're so, totally confident now. Yeah, yeah, yes. I, I mean, we wouldn't be. We wouldn't be. Of course, there's challenges along the road, and there's a big lift. Was you know, renewable energy was about 30 percent when we came to office, and we're getting to 82. It's a big job. Of course, there's bumps and challenges. I don't shy away from that but we continue with the journey. I want to come back to the uh, gripes of farmers. Some have been very critical of the Bureau of Meteorology, which forecast, of course, a hot, dry summer when we've had a, a very wet summer. Are you satisfied that the Bureau is up to scratch? Look, I think the Bureau is a great national institution, yes. And what the Bureau did is warn of an El Nino. And we have had an El Nino, but it's had an impact perhaps, um, which... Uh, wasn't necessarily expected, which is the warming of the water, uh, then leading to cyclones um, and flooding. Um, but that doesn't mean that their prediction about El Nino was incorrect. And of course, and the other point I make, Michelle, is we're not yet through summer. And we have had plenty of very, very hot days as they predicted, as they predicted. Um, that's what they predicted, lots of hot days. And we've had that. Um, we've had you know record energy demand in Queensland uh, twice in a week, for example. Um, due to hot hot weather, we've had you know searing temperatures in Sydney and elsewhere. The energy grid has coped well with that. I just want to deal with that. I know you didn't particularly ask about that, but I just want to point that out. We've had no blackouts as a result of uh, energy generation. We have had some outages as a result of distribution and transmission, you know, storm sitting power lines. That's pretty standard. But in no case has the energy system, electricity system, fallen short of the amount of electricity we've needed at any particular time over summer, and that's a result of a lot of hard work. 
Is the story of the Bureau here perhaps, though, that when these uh, forecast predictions are made, it's necessary to surround them with more explanation and qualification. I mean, I'm thinking a bit in a very different field of the Reserve Bank governor and interest rates where the qualifications were not made clear enough. I think, you know, you can always look at what could be done more clearly, um, but the Bureau warned of a long, hot summer and we've got a long, hot summer. Um, Could there be better and further particulars put around that? I mean, I think that's things people could take on board, but... um, the uh, substance of their prediction is one that I, uh, you know, one that I don't criticise them for. Just finally, I understand that you're developing a First Nations clean energy strategy, asking how best to enable Indigenous Australians to lead and benefit from the energy transition. What precisely do you expect to emerge from this? What's the vision sure. here? When you say I'm developing it, I'm co-developing it with First Nations people. It's co-designed. Um, I think that's very important because it's not me sitting in Canberra telling First Nations people what they need and what will happen. We're working through a First Nations Clean Energy and Emissions Reduction Committee to write the strategy. Who heads that? Uh, it's 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 got a number of First Nations people on um, across the country. Um, it's very run very collaboratively um, across the committee. Um, it's done a lot of you know outreach and meetings. It's got more work to do. But uh, without uh, just to, I mean I, I see them as sort of complementary challenges and opportunities. Indigenous people have a lot of energy insecurity in remote Australia. I mean, amongst the most energy insecure in the world. Um, uh, Their electricity gets turned off a lot. Um, But they live in the hottest, sunniest places in the world. So, you know, we need to better harness renewable energy. We need to give them more energy reliability. We need to learn from Indigenous peoples on um, savannah management, which we're doing. And, you know, um, recently a columnist in News Limited said we've basically effectively got nothing to learn from First Nations people on climate change. That's not true, and I regard that effect, that suggestion as offensive. We actually do have a savannah burning method, which is inspired by First Nations teachings, and I don't think it's appropriate to exclude them from the conversation, and it won't happen under our government. Next week, the government's going to talk about uh, implementation of, uh, uh, of goals after the in a statement after the um, referendum and what more should be done on closing the gap. Do you see scope in the energy area for projects and so job creation by First Nations people sure. actually running enterprises? Yeah, and um, if you look at Canada, for example, I mean, a big proportion of Canada's renewable energy is actually owned by their First Nations people, much, much bigger than in Australia. Um, now, do we turn that ship around overnight? No. But do we have uh, things to do? Yes. And are there some early signs of growth and, thing, and, and encouragement? Yes, there's been some big First Nations involvement in some big renewable energy investments, and I would not say much more of it because I think that's good for renewable energy. It's good for income streams for First Nations communities and families. And what what areas of energy is well, the potential? Well, that's, that's, solar? Uh, yeah, so, I, mean, I think solar is probably top of the list, yes, because it's, it's that's sort of scale that communities can invest in and be involved in probably more, uh, more easily. Well, they own a lot of land and they mm. own a lot of land in Correct. hot, sunny areas, don't Correct. they? Correct, exactly. And as I said, Canada... 
I've met with a Canadian delegation of First Nations people. I've learned a lot from them. Um, Canadian Minister and I, Stephen Gabot, have had a good couple of talks about it. I've learned from him. So, yes, there's a lot more we can do. Chris Bowen, thank you very much for talking with us today on uh, issues of controversy and issues of development and progress. And thank you to my producer, Ben Roper. We'll be back with another interview soon, but that's goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.